You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, June 6, 2022. Later in the program, the Indiana General Assembly overrode Governor Eric Holcomb's veto, effectively banning transgender girls from playing sports on girls' sports teams. In today's show, we feature audio testimony from concerned Indiana residents. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have an excerpt from Blooming Out, WFHB's LGBTQ affairs program, tackling the anti-transgender sports law. But first, your daily headlines. On June 1st, at the Monroe County Commissioner's Meeting, commissioners heard from Facility and Fleet Manager Greg Crone, who asked them to approve funding for an HVAC system at Election Central. Crone shared that since the building used to be the former Napa Auto Shop, its HVAC system is not adequate for the election equipment and for future storage. The $9,615 unit would help maintain the ballot room's climate. The commissioners approved the purchase of the HVAC system. County Attorney Jeff Cockrell shared that they have received complaints about a camp where people experiencing homelessness have settled. He said that they are going to evict the individuals and clean the property up. This issue has occurred. We received numerous complaints about a uh, homeless encampment on one of the county properties. Um, we have followed our, our code and our requirements under that code to give them notice to, to, to remove. Um, well, and then that deadline will be tomorrow at noon. And then after that, we have a, a, some work ahead of us to get the area cleaned up. Um, we have a, we walked the site yesterday. I walked it with the sheriff's department, highway department, emergency management department, and in solid waste department. And there was a lot more there than we had expected or anticipated. And so this is a, an agreement to help make sure that we can get that property into a sanitary state as soon as we can. They expect it will take up to five days to, to accomplish that. And that is with the help of our highway department. And Toby Turner has, working with Toby Turner, so we think we can make that accomplish that um, and hopefully get this done by the end of the weekend. But it will be, but it could potentially go into Monday. Commissioner Julie Thomas commented that it is a difficult situation, but that they have to keep everyone safe. The commissioners approved the contract with Bio One Indianapolis to clean up the encampment. The next commissioner's meeting will be on June 8th. Committee members discussed their vision for a new facility during the June 1st Monroe County Criminal Justice Response Committee meeting. Committee member Lee Jones mentioned that changing the name of the jail could help in carrying out their vision. Maybe we should come up with a new name. 
And I started thinking, if, you know, what if, what if you didn't have it named Correctional Center? What if it was named something else? Would you think differently about it? Would you right. build it differently? Yeah. If it were the Center for Equity and Justice, would it look different? Would you design it differently than if it's like, oh, yeah. I'm building a jail? Committee member Jennifer Crossley said she agreed with the name change and that she hopes the committee will help redefine criminal justice. You know, from our lens as commissioner or counselors or as, um, you know, the legal aspect of the county, you know, we look at it from that particular lens when in actuality it's us, we're, you know, a small part of the community and we should be looking at community input in this as well. And I think that when you look at the criminal justice system, um, like, I, I think if we look at it in a different way, then maybe we will think in terms of, you know, programs and how to build it instead of this big place that we will build just to house all the bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it has gone. But if we change that mindset of this is what this is, because in actuality, we don't want people to be a part of this. We don't want them to be repeat offenders in it. But instead, you know, how can we rehabilitate people into society so that they don't come back? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's really important. And I do like the idea of changing the name. The committee agreed to discuss actionable steps to develop a more equitable criminal justice response at their June 22nd meeting. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. A 20-year-old became the sixth person in New York City's jail system to die in 2022. Just after 4 p.m. this past Saturday, a corrections officer found Emmanuel Sullivan dead in his bed at the Robert N. Davern Center on Rikers Island. Victor Pate, a former Rikers inmate who is now the co-director of the Hall Solitary Campaign, an effort to end solitary confinement in New York jails and prisons, said, We do not need more committees, more task forces, or more long overdue plans to address conditions which are well documented and deadly. We need action to decarcerate and we need our electeds to make decisions that will keep incarcerated people and staff alive, safe, and healthy. The cause of death is under investigation by the city's office of the chief medical examiner. As is the case in all deaths in city jails custody, The state attorney general and city department of investigation will also be looking into the circumstances of Sullivan's death. Oversight officials and Rikers court-ordered federal monitor found in their reports this year that corrections officers and medical staff are often the last to respond to inmate deaths, in part because of a daily staffing crisis on the island. A board of corrections report released earlier this month concluded Inmates were the first to respond in each of this year's first three deaths in Corrections Department custody, 
calling the late responses by officers in each case, quote, a chronic and life-threatening issue. One inmate, 52-year-old Herman Diaz, collapsed in March as he choked on an orange. With no officer on the floor of the housing unit, and the only officer observing the unit from a separate room barred from interacting with detainees, it was left to Diaz's fellow inmates to respond to the medical episode. No officer intervened as Diaz died. On Tuesday, a federal judge gave the city less than three weeks to come up with a finalized plan to reform Rikers as a federal takeover is being considered by the court. Sullivan was placed in DOC custody on February 8th. His next court date was scheduled for Wednesday, according to the Corrections Department website. 14 people in DOC custody died in 2021. And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On May 13th, a group of 13 immigrant detainees at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, began a hunger strike which lasted 10 days, according to the outside support group La Resistencia, according to PRISM, an online media outlet, quote, Among their demands are proper COVID-19 protections, access to medical care, for the facility to be properly cleaned, for in-person visits to restart for the first time since March 2020, for their jobs to be reinstated with just pay, and for edible food and a reduction in commissary prices. The rampant lack of access to legal representation and resources that could help people's immigration cases only adds to the layers of injustice hunger strikers and supporters on the outside are fighting to change. The Northwest Detention Center has been the site of consistent hunger strikes and other political organizing by immigrant detainees for many years. To trace the history of this struggle, check out PerilousChronicle.com. On Friday, May 13th, 12 prisoners engaged in what law enforcement officials referred to as a riot in the Albany County Correctional Facility in Albany, New York. According to jail officials, the prisoners concealed their identities with shirts and towels and prevented staff from entering a section of the jail. The prisoners resisted attempts of intrusion by using mops, broomsticks, and cups of urine to defend themselves. The prisoners also poured soap on the floor to make their apprehension difficult. Tear gas and pepper spray were deployed by the Correction Emergency Response Team in order to retake the area, and two prisoners were reportedly treated in the emergency room due to injuries resulting from unknown physical altercations. According to jail officials, the riot was initiated by disgruntled prisoners who demanded a specific correctional officer be removed from their tier as he was denying them access to clean linens and clothes from family. Three minors incarcerated at the Ware Youth Center in Louisiana escaped from the facility on Saturday, May 14th, allegedly with the help of a 21-year-old female guard who was spotted by a surveillance camera driving the trio out of the facility. The four were arrested the following day outside a hotel in Houston, Texas, about 250 miles away, where they'd left their getaway car in the parking lot for several hours. Louisiana, known as the incarceration capital of the world, locks up more of its residents per capita than any other U.S. state. Juvenile detention centers in the state have faced special scrutiny amidst a wave of escapes, uprisings, suicides, and the revelation that solitary confinement for youth in the state is a common practice, according to a recent report by the Marshall Project. On Sunday, May 22nd, 
three fights broke out in separate housing units, one after the other, inside the Santa Barbara County Jail, according to the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Public Information Officer. According to the Sheriff's Office, seven prisoners were struck by pepper balls and six were exposed to pepper spray. Fifteen total prisoners were removed from their units for examination and decontamination. Two tasers were deployed. According to a family member who spoke with NewsHawk, one person reported that, quote, almost all the inmates were pepper sprayed and many were forced out into the yard where they were made to lie on the ground. At this time, there is no information about what precipitated the fight between prisoners. On the evening of May 29th, two minors who were detained at the St. Louis County Juvenile Detention Center in Clayton, Missouri, escaped from the facility. As of Monday, May 30th, they have yet to be recaptured. Late last month, the Indiana General Assembly overrode Governor Eric Holcomb's veto, effectively banning transgender girls from playing on girls' sports teams. Holcomb previously claimed the ban was unnecessary and expressed concern the policy would leave the state vulnerable to lawsuits. However, the House overrode the governor's veto with a 67 to 28 vote, while the Senate voted 32 to 15 to overturn the governor's objection to the law. According to the Human Rights Campaign, an LGBTQ advocacy group, at least 18 states have introduced restrictions on transgender sports participation in recent years. Bloomington Pride Board Chair Janae Cummings spoke to legislators inside the State House earlier this year in opposition to what is now called House Enrolled Act 1041. When trans girls play on girls' sports teams, girls who are not transgender can win, and they often do win. The majority do win. There is no epidemic of transgender girls dominating female sports and driving out non-trans girls. There are no examples of boys pretending to be girls to gain an unfair advantage, and requiring trans girls to compete on boys' teams effectively excludes them from playing at all. And it devastates me to imagine the moment where we have to tell any of them that we live in a place where they aren't allowed to play. This aggressively cruel legislation discriminates against children, and it is simply unconscionable. Athlete Angie Martinez testified to the General Assembly, saying that the law seeks to discriminate against transgender girls and sends the message they are not welcome in schools. I've been an athlete all my life, uh, from school sports all the way to the women's, women's semi-pros. I've had the honor and privilege to play alongside girls and boys, some who happen to be trans. And I have valued my teammates and competitors alike, because to me, that's what sports is about. I don't consider trans girls, trans women to be a threat. I'm insulted at the fact that this bill and these transgressions are happening. Kit Malone advocacy strategist for the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana, told legislators that trans students should have the right to play school sports, just like anyone else. 
There is no place in Indiana where trans girls have taken over girls' sports teams. The IHSAA sets guidelines for participation and has strict guidelines on trans participation. This bill seeks to solve a problem where one does not exist and demonizes trans children unnecessarily. I want to state this unequivocally. Trans people, by whatever name you choose to call them, are your neighbors, your friends, your family members, and students in your schools. How can we possibly do this? We've been in Indiana for as long as there has been an Indiana. ACLU Indiana has filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana on behalf of a 10-year-old transgender girl who plays on her school's girls' softball team. The lawsuit argues that preventing transgender girls from playing girls' sports violates Title IX because it discriminates on the basis of sex. The suit claims the new law is considered discriminatory towards individuals on the basis of transgender status and sex, according to the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. To learn more about the lawsuit, visit aclu-indiana.org. In January of this year, WFHB's LGBTQ plus affairs program, Blooming Out, hosted a panel discussion over what was then called House Bill 1041. In today's feature report, we revisit an excerpt from that two-part series. We turn now to part of that interview. I'm Kit Malone. I use she, hers pronouns. I'm a political advocacy strategist at the ACLU of Indiana. Fabulous. I'm Deb Pardue. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist who does a lot of mental health work with um, transgender clients. And I'm a PhD candidate who did a lot of research to write a dissertation on transgender mental health training policies for mental health clinicians to help better their um, ability to provide good mental health. Um, Although I'm not finishing that dissertation, I decided to stop to focus on keeping my practice open um, because if I finish the dissertation, I have to close down, which then um, we don't have a lot of great people who are aware in Indiana. And so I didn't want to take away that resource from people. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Jean Jean Smith, she, her, uh, they, them. Uh, bike shop owner, bike smiths, uh, longtime sponsor at WFHB, uh, president of Stonewall Democrats, South Central Indiana, member of the Indiana uh, Gender Equality Movement, and uh, all-around person that's really old. Oh, you're not the Queen of England yet, so you're good. Um, Nathaniel Clawson. I'm the parent of a nine-year-old amazing transgender girl. I am also the treasurer for Spencer Pride, and I work for Boston Scientific over in Spencer, and I'm a project manager. Wonderful. Yay! Thank you for coming. Welcome, everybody. It's really exciting to have you on the show. Good to be here. I'm really excited, and you know, I hope that we get a lot of good information out there for people here today. I hope so, too.
the education committee gets a lot of these bills, um, particularly in the past year um, or to the past couple of sessions as, as sort of attacks on youth specifically have really become the, the focus of the anti-trans movement we're seeing. Um, you know, really the narrative focusing on youth in schools um, as a place where they can activate sort of the, the, their movable middle um, in terms of getting outrage out there. And that's that's sort of why we continue to see this. Obviously, this bill was was germane to the Education Committee because it dealt specifically with K-12 and college sports. Now it's been reduced to simply K-12 sports. Um, they've removed um, college, pr presumably because the NCAA does not want, um, you know, a law restricting their ability to make policy on the issue. They, they just changed their position recently, right? They had been pro-trans inclusion, and now they're kind of like stepping back from being so vociferous in that way and being a little more, um, not maybe- Cowardly? Libertarian. Coward, there you go. Did I say um, cowardly? You said Dare cowardly. I say politically coward, political cowardice? Yeah, yeah. Because not supporting the students, that just seems antithetical to what they're there for. They're there for supporting the students in one way or another. And this way is just taking the, the cheap way out. Well, and I just want to point out that the NCAA recently had a massive flap um, where um, it was exposed the differences in treatment between um, men and women on sports teams, uh, the different resources that women um, received, like far, far um, exceeded by the men um, who were able to get incredible resources and meals and training facilities and the women were sort of stuck with the leftovers um and like to me this this position is such a is is, is is extra cowardly because you know there's been no real big push to change that inequity mm -hmm. um and uh the, you know, the idea that the idea that trans athletes and the NCAA are the real problem with gender disparity is just ludicrous. Right. Because the issues that get brought up now in conservative media, which are based around, you know, the and I, I content warning, folks, I really want to put this out there. There are going to be there's going to be language that you're going to hear on the show, on this episode, especially dehumanizing uh, language that really is horrific to many of us and self-included. It was hard listening to the testimony and, and even the presentation of the bill, just as it was from Ms. Davis, no relation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's really nasty. They use the terms biological male and biological female which they're not real terms. They, they have no meaning outside of to mean. It's a really a political term. It's, 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 winning, it's winning by use, use of language. I mean, it's... Right. It's created... They it, who control the language win the war. And uh, I, I'm wondering, because at NGEM, we found the website for the Indiana Family Institute that Kit mentioned early. And... Uh, when we were first looking at it, every single page had reference to transgender kids and athletes and stuff. And, and I looked at it again uh, about a month and a half ago, two months ago, and they had wiped all of that stuff from their website. But there's a national group they're associated with, and it had it they had a very slick professional um, publication 
that was telling parents how to do this stuff. And I'm, cause I'm just, just as we're talking about this now, I, I know I read someplace where they were instructing these people to use the term biological male instead of transgender, avoid the word transgender. And that may be where I saw it. And we did download their PDF for that mm -hmm. um, brochure, but it no longer is on their page anymore. Um, I don't know for sure that's where I got it, but I know that I read someplace that that's in their, that is in their playbook for how to deal with this issue is to use that term. And, and it basically, what the way it was used was to just equate that this is male versus feet, males playing sports. That's what they were saying over right. and over and over. They didn't want to get into the weeds with transgender and blocker of hormones or any of that stuff. They just wanted to call us men and leave it at that. I think that the gene is right on. Um, with that, that is definitely um, the movement is coalescing around that language. Um, and it makes a lot of sense for them to do it because it's an easier battle for them to fight. Um, but um, I think that we even saw this in some of the cross-questioning in the committee hearing that we all attended. Um, that um, I think that, that can, that's a, that's a double-edged sword um, because it leaves them open you know, when we had the representative from Idaho who um, was referring to the, you know, a similar bill that she passed in Idaho to ban transgender students that is, in fact, currently under injunction because the court found that um, the ACLU of, of, of Idaho was likely to succeed on the merits of their case and that the, that the law was likely unconstitutional. She was trying to deftly avoid talking about that. She was trying to deftly avoid talking about whether or not this targeted transgender people and, you know, sort of watching, watching under questioning um, some of our, some of one of our, one of our friendlies in the, on the committee, try to get her to say the word transgender was hilarious and I, you know it opens them up to that tack so i mean that's just something to think about there is that it does seem it makes them look really ridiculous once they are challenged on that um, because they have clearly been coached to not say the word transgender even though they all know that these bills exist specifically to single out transgender people um you know they're not there's not really a serious concern with other with quote, even if we accept the term biological male on its face, which is ridiculous, right. um, you know, there's not a glut of just boys wanting to play on girls sports teams. We know we're talking about transgender people. So when you name it, you know, it's just, that's an, I think just naming it and getting the people who are friendly to the cause and committees and, you know, where, where this is debated in public to name that directly really works for us. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. 
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Melanie Davis. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Don Guerra. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 